What's really going on in the heads and hearts of the humans around you? I'm Mads Grummet, journalist, entrepreneur and startup investor. And I'm Sabina Reid, psychologist, speaker and media commentator. And this is Human Cogs, a podcast about the universal experiences that really matter and the candid conversations we need to have to share them. If you like Human Cogs, we'd love you to hit subscribe and please leave us a star rating. That way we can keep bringing you more stories from Extraordinary Ordinaries to help us all do human well. Being listened to, really listened to, is perhaps the greatest gift we can offer each other. While most of us have countless exchanges with loved ones, colleagues, clients, family and even strangers every day, how often are we listening deeply to what they say and what they don't say? And how often do we come away feeling listened to? Oscar Trimboli is a renowned deep listening expert, author, podcaster and speaker. But it's less about the content he shares that creates lasting change in the leaders and organisations he works with, and more about the way he listens that invites others to follow suit. This conversation with Oscar literally stopped us in our tracks, inviting us to slow down, shut up, often a problem for me, and explore how we both listen. And as a result, it really changed our thinking about the way we sit in conversation with each other, but also with our guest on Human Cogs. If you've ever wondered how you can dial up your listening with the people you love, live or work with, then please make time to really listen to our conversation with Oscar. Most people consider themselves to be good listeners. Excellent, in fact. What does a good listener do? I think a good listener listens to what's said, but great listeners listen to what's not said. So straight away, I think if you're listening to this, where are you on that spectrum? Because I think in our closest, deepest, most intimate relationships, whether that's at home or at work, we probably listen most poorly to those who are closest to us or we've got the longest relationship with and good listeners You know, they do a lot of, hmm. So what you said was, and when you understand the three magic numbers of listening, you understand why it's so important, not only to listen to what's said, but to listen to what's not said. So I can speak at 125 words a minute, but I think at 900. So that means the very first thing I say is about 12% of what I'm thinking. So if you're spending all your time having a conversation with somebody and listening to the first 12% of what they say, it's probably going to be confusion, chaos, conflict, rework, frustration, a whole bunch of stuff going on. And it's worse for you listening to this right now. You're listening at 400 words per minute. You're drifting, you're distracted, you're anticipating, you're jumping ahead, you're disagreeing because you can listen faster than I can speak, it's hard for you to stay in this place. But if you can train yourself to listen, not just to what's said, think about how it's said, and then listen to what's not said, you'll move from a good to a great listener. And a great listener changes the way a speaker communicates what they want to say. It's difficult to respond to that. Oh, I'm just listening (laughs) for a moment. What what do you think happens to us, and, you know, I've got some experience of this with my clinical hat on, when we don't feel listened to? I will answer that question, but I'm just curious about the need to fill the space with a question. Sometimes silence is the most powerful way we can listen. And a lot of the clients I work with do what we've just done. Mads had a very profound moment, if I'm not mistaken. Which was, did I miss it? <laughs> no, you were reflecting, you were processing. Yeah. Well, well, I was being very deliberate, I suppose. I mean, I, in this format of a podcast, it often is it's an interview style. So there's a certain formula you're probably using in that context where it's our role to 
well, traditionally to ask questions and then for you to respond. But I think it's interesting, you know, if we flip that on its head a little and say, well, what if we do sit with the silence and our response does not become the jump toward another question, but, but yeah, something that can sit inside what you've just told us. Mm. And the assumption that you're the host and I'm the guest and you lead and you ask questions and I can't ask questions back, you probably haven't had too many guests who are asking you questions in the past. The point I want to make is really simple. We don't often communicate about how we want to have the conversation. So things feel icky and disjointed when somebody says, hmm, yeah, um, can we just stay in the silence? Can we just process that? Can we just be in that moment? Because I think the best conversations are a mutual exchange of ideas and listening is the willingness to have your mind change. So I'm happy to do the ping pong match. You ask me the question, I answer all of that. And for the audience, you know, they're probably used to that. I'm just curious if a different approach might uh, engage the audience differently when it comes to listening. That was the reason I wanted to stay with the silence. What about you lead us where you want this conversation to go? Or, or collectively it shapes as we listen to each other? And, again, when we design the conversation, the question we should be asking ourselves is this, not what we want from it. What do you think the audience is busting to ask us? If you were to channel the audience right now, I bet you they'd be asking completely different questions to what we'd have a conversation about. And this kind of talks to my point about listening happens before, during and after an event, a dialogue, a conversation. How do you set up the conversation even before you come into it? So for me, one of the things I love about the research we've done around listening is a lot of people go, the pregnant pause, the awkward silence, the deafening silence, the intimidating silence, these are all really highly Western English-speaking constructs. When we listen to our Indigenous communities in Australia, we listen to Maori and Polynesian cultures through the Pacific, the Inuit, the Eskimo of North America, and high-context cultures, highly relational cultures like Korea, Japan, and China, and the listening is a sign of wisdom, respect, and authority. And often group meetings, people are brought to presence by the host, the leader, holding the group in silence for anywhere up to five minutes and, and yarning circles if you've participated in that with our Indigenous communities, do a beautiful job making sure everyone's in a circle, making sure everybody's present to the moment. So for me, uh, one of my curiosities is how frequently people jump in on the silence because we didn't go to the obvious question number two and we've stayed in this space since it's got a different experience for who's listening to us right now. I like that. I think it's, um, it's actually something, thank you, Oscar, for bringing those thoughts and curiosity to this space. Before we hopped on, I said to Mads, Shut up. <laughs> I said, let's leave some spaces because I said um, when I'm one-on-one, -on -one, I have a lot of silence. And what did you say? Shut up. No, no, no. What did you say? What did you say? Uh, oh, I can't remember. You, you, I, can't I think remember you reflected on this forum. You said, but in, in a recorded. Oh, in a journalistic sort of format. I mean, that's my background is in that where it is, it's a bit, you know, a one-two kind of formula, which is the question and then the answer and, the, and it is the ping pong. Uh, so I, I think it's, yeah, it's very interesting to have a sort of live experiment in listening itself and, and to move outside of a formula. Uh, and, and as you say to what is it the audience wants to hear, reflecting on that question, listening to your question, Oscar, here's mm. a question that is coming up, if it's okay, if I ask a question, and that is how do you, for people who are listening to this conversation today and they might be listening and thinking, well, how do I become a better listener in my, my relationships or with my partner, what are some ideas or some, some thoughts you have around how we can become better listeners to those we love the most? Uh, 
I think it's summed up best by this story between Jennifer and Christopher. And Christopher comes home from school and says to his mum in a very excited voice, hey, mummy, mummy, I learned maths today and I learned that three is half of eight. And Jennifer is a primary school teacher as well and she's got lots going on in the kitchen and she thinks she's misheard her son. So she says, Christopher, honey, could you say that again? And he said, yes, mummy, I learned the three is half of eight. Now she's put her hands in her face at this point in time. She's scratching her head and thinking, what the heck are they teaching kids at school today? So she goes to the cupboard and she grabs eight M&Ms out of the cupboard and she lines them up in rows of two, four M&Ms on one side, like little soldiers facing each other on top of the kitchen bench and four on the other. And she picks Christopher up and puts him on the kitchen bench and said, honey, count how many M&M soldiers are in this row. And he says, four, one, two, three, four. And how many on the other side? And he said, well, they're facing each other, so it's four. And she said, see, honey, four is half of eight, not three. And with that, Christopher leaps off the kitchen bench, goes and grabs a piece of paper with a magic marker and draws the figure eight. But what he does next changes both our lives forever. He folds the piece of paper in half vertically and he tears it in half and he shows his mum, see mummy, three is half of eight, not four. And if you follow that and you fold that piece of paper horizontally, zero is half of eight as well. So back to your question, Mads, when it comes to tight relationships, do we listen for similarities to reload our argument or are we listening for difference? Again, in the West, based on our schooling system, we're taught to pattern match, we're taught to listen for similarities and not for difference. And in a lot of conversations, your loved one, your long-term partner, you will be having a conversation where they're saying three is half of eight and you're just, you're not verbalizing it. You go, oh my God, that's so wrong. Four is half of eight. What are they going on about? When you go and start to listen for difference, you will realize that people experience the world completely differently to you. They have a different cultural background. They have a different educational background, life experiences, professions, a whole bunch of things that go into this wonderful salad that is the ingredients of their life. Yet we are so fixated on telling them, I can't wait for them to finish because I'm going to tell them they're wrong and tell them that four is half of eight. And unless you take the time to step back and listen to what they haven't said, then you'll start to understand what they are thinking, but also what they mean. So it needs a little bit of patience. Uh, one of the things we know from our deep listening research, over 20,000 people right now, if you were to completely generalize, women listen to feel and men listen to fix. So, for the men out there, the women aren't broken. They don't need to be fixed. You just need to listen. That's all. And, and my dog for sure saved my marriage because whenever me and my wife go for a walk in the afternoon with our dog, um, in the early days, all I wanted to do was, oh, I, I can fix that problem. I can fix that problem. And off I'd go. And then eventually Jen would say, I just want you to listen. So. Really simply, do you listen for similarity or do you listen for difference? Because listening is situational, relational, and contextual. You'll listen differently to your father than you will to a fire brigade. You'll listen differently to a school principal than you will to a police person. You'll listen differently to your mother, to a mechanic. And all these dynamics are playing out while we're listening. So when it comes to listening to those close to us, I think we rush, I think we problem solve, I think we anticipate, I think we don't stay present to understand what they really mean. So my one tip is notice what listening filter you've got on while I was telling that story. Could you entertain the possibility that three is half of eight, zero is half of eight, and four is half of eight? Or are you just shaking your fist 
and saying, it's full, it's full, it's full, it's full. What is he going on about? It's full. And many of us, what we don't know about Christopher, Christopher was uh, and still is neurodivergent. Some people will call him autistic. But he's also a world champion bug catcher. He graduated from college in the United States by the age of 15, where most people are doing that at 18. And he's now a world champion bug catcher in the software industry because he experiences the world completely differently. He notices the world in patterns that most neurotypical people wouldn't. And his mum, Jennifer, was. But she realised in that moment he experienced the world really differently and she educated him very differently from that point on as well. It's a great story. Thank you for sharing it. Is, is it partly that we're fighting against our... I'm going to not use the right language, um, but our sort of primitive mental models or dictates. So if you think about the role of heuristics or confirmation bias, the shortcuts that our brains all take for our survival, is it partly, you know, in pulling back to really listen and stop ourselves from jumping to solution or or heuristic uh, assumptions that we Mm. need to undo, unlearn that somewhat to sit inside a listening space? Yes and no. And the first skill we ever learn inside our mother's womb at the age of 32 weeks is to listen. We can distinguish the sound of our mother at 32 weeks from any other sound in the outside world. And at 36 weeks, we can distinguish Beethoven from the Beatles, from Bon Jovi, from Justin Bieber, right? Yet the minute we come into the world, we're kicking and screaming and we're making noise and we want to be noticed by speaking. Uh, Listening happens just behind your skull in the modern part of the brain. It's called the prefrontal cortex. And I believe that a lot of conditioning from our parents, our teachers, our grandparents have taught us how to listen. A lot of people say, well, I've never gone to a listening class. And I go, every day with your mum was a listening class, every day with your teacher because they were role modelling what listening is. So although these heuristics are useful, if I want to kill a saber-toothed tiger or want to get some food in my tummy or want to find some drinking water or want to protect the tribe, modern work is creative, it's collaborative, it's constrained, it's complex, and it all takes part in the modern part of the brain. And yet everything that hijacks us is happening on the limbic stem. And the social media companies have figured this out. They have got you so dopamine addicted to clicking on the red dot and the next thing and the thumb scroll and all of that because they know that humans, at the end of the day, if they've got a choice between the good angel and the bad angel sitting on the back of the limbic stem connected to our spine, they'll always pick the most primitive response unless you're conscious that that's what's happening but too many of us we don't realize that listening doesn't start by focusing on the speaker that's actually the wrong place to start listen to yourself that's the starting point for listening and not enough people turn up to any conversation with anything other than hundreds of web browser tabs open up in their own brain and they need to close those web browser tabs down to become present to themselves and then they can become present to the other person or the group that they're listening and a lot of professions have rituals that do this Uh, i interviewed a world champion sniper and she talked about the role of her breathing to make her into a world champion sniper and how that helped with her focus But equally, she talked about how she used leaves in trees to reset her focus because you can't concentrate for an infinite period of time as well. So I'm curious, Sabina, in your profession, what are the rituals you do before the client turns up to get you present? I think breath is really important. And what I'm noticing now that that you do so naturally naturally now, maybe not four-year-old Oscar, but adult Oscar in front of us, is the cadence and tone of your speech. 
which is not to answer your question, is not what I do before someone comes in because I don't talk to myself before I see someone or before I present or whatever it is I'm doing. I've learned through trial and error that the pace of speech is a very powerful anchor to being present with each other, to me being present to you. And then what's happening now, and everyone will hear this in this conversation, is that we mirror the cadence of one another. So we started fast and you said, whoa, ladies, whoa, <laughs> and pulled on the reins and we went, ah, you know, <laughs> and it slowed the process. Yeah. And I think that that happens for me in the in a therapeutic space. And as you say, Oscar, it's contextual. And when you're with others who are flying around the Melbourne Cup racetrack, then you meet them where they are. And what's coming up for me now is the importance of not following suit. We're not in the same race and we don't need to cross the finish line. In fact, when we do cross the finish line, we leave people behind. So say more about the consequences of leaving people behind. They, When we leave others behind or if we're left behind, we feel um, like we don't matter, like we're not seen, like what we're saying hasn't been impactful or important or valid because we've been left behind. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, so I asked you all too quickly what happens when we don't feel listened to Actually, it's a question that most people, I think every actually every human across the lifespan at every age could answer. Mm. We don't need instruction. We don't need training to know what it feels like not to be listened to. Every one of us has had that experience multiple times in our lives. But what's coming up for me now is we've all had that experience and yet we repeat. We know what it's like not to be heard, not to really be listened to. We knew that as a child. We know that as a partner. We know that as a parent. We know that as an employee, as a manager, as a boyfriend, as a girlfriend. We all, as a student, we've all had that experience. Like if you're not heard enough times, you either become silent or you become louder. You tried to do something to be heard, yeah. Or, or you just shut down and you, you become voiceless. Yeah. Because, mm. Yeah. Do you relate to either of those? Well, look, I'm a, I'm a bit of a fast talker. You know, I, I tend to move fast through the world and, you know, probably break the, you know, number of words per minute record if I gave it a good crack. Um, but I think the, I mean, these are use, this is a useful exercise in and of itself what we're doing right now because I think, as, as you, you know, as you notice, we, we all slowed down to the same cadence quite naturally, allowing ourselves to be led by you, Oscar, as well, and sort of almost relinquishing yourself over to that. Um, but I do know, you know, if you think about the very powerful moments or in my life anyway of, of being human there is so much that sits in silence and in silence is often where I'll do my best thinking or my deepest uh, self-examination or wondering or understanding about things going on in the world complex grief loss death you, you know complex things and certainly in my case I'll do that in the bath a lot where I'm, I'm very anchored in that space and it's you know more or less silent yeah, and there's something very, very powerful about giving yourself permission to sit in that. And yet you often sit in the bath solo, from what I know about your bath selfies. We don't bath <laughs> together, by the way. <laughs> so I've never been in a bath with you. No. But when you... You will never be. Talk, oh, you don't know. You don't know that. When you share experiences of your bath time, I mean this quite seriously, because you do, I know it's a treasured place for you. You often read in the bath, you light candles, there's rituals around mm. bath time. They seem to be mostly solo. Yeah. You know, Jez isn't in there with you. The kids aren't in there with you. The dog's not in there with you. No, they are solo, but it, it's very much a practice of me time 
me time, you know, time to self that cannot be interrupted, uh, apart from the dog running in and trying to jump into the bath as well. Um, but, yeah, so, so no, there is, there's ritual because that's space that's carved out for thinking, mm. for reflecting, it, whether it's reading or it's, it's synthesising. Uh, so listening to myself, I suppose, is something about stopping to listen, yes, to the silence, but then listen what is coming up loudly for me in that moment. And how would that differ? Um, thanks for joining us, Oscar. This is brilliant. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Welcome to Human Cogs, <laughs> Sabina Reid. <laughs> how, would, how would that be different? How is that different for you than when you're in the presence of others? I, I think that listening to oneself has its own and this whole idea of self-examination, self-reflection and hearing what's coming up f- for you as an individual is separate can inform then your other relationships because of course the more in touch with yourself you are well then hopefully the better you show up um in your other relationships um so it's quite separate those two acts of listening I think because then in my primary relationships or my with people I love um the act of listening there is there's a dynamic and dynamism around that exchange then with the other person and stopping to listen and hear them. I was reflecting on how you said I you are I either withdraw or I dial myself up I get louder or I go quiet, you said. That they are the choices of someone who hasn't been heard is that they will become silent or then they will amplify mm. to assert their right to be heard. Mm-hmm. So there's those two states, yeah. Mm. But, Oscar, what do you, what do you think? <laughs> so when I, when I run workshops or whether they're online or face-to-face, the, the fascinating comment always coming back to me is, Oscar, you taught us more about listening through your example by being rather than doing the listening Mm. or teaching Mm. listening. And 2018 in September, I know where I was because I was being interviewed on a US radio show and they asked me this question about the grumpy uncle at Thanksgiving and I thought it was an archetype, but we all have them. I'm sure whether that's Easter or whether that's Christmas or whether that's Pesach or Hanukkah, whatever your traditions are. And it comes to your point about what happens when people aren't heard. So the pattern was very simple. The radio host described to me that everybody arrives for the dinner by 5 p.m. and they start to eat by 7 p.m. And they said you can almost set your clock by 8 p.m. The grumpy uncle is bringing up the same story and growling at everybody at the table and everybody doesn't enjoy the experience. Oscar, what advice would you give us? And I said, look, I won't give you a lot of advice, but my sense is the grumpy uncle hasn't been heard. There is something fundamental that's in their call that's been ignored, that's been papered over, whatever it is. And the context was really simple. He always brings up politics. He always shouts across the table at differing political views. And I said, so rather than debate, just ask a very curious question about when did you first form this perspective? And what shocked me was it was actually the announcer's uncle. I I thought it was just a generic story. So it's typically the, I think it's, the last week in November, somewhere in November, but I know I got it on the 3rd of December. I got an email back from the announcer explaining what happened at this dinner. And he had the courage to ask his uncle this question, when did you first form this opinion? He said, when I came back from the Vietnam War, I fought for the liberty of this country. I fought for your freedom. I fought for you to have something that other people take for granted. I was ignored, I was spat at, I was thrown out of society. Nobody cared about the sacrifices I made. And he went on to tell stories about the Vietnam War for the next hour and a half and everybody around the table was completely silent and spellbound, the youngest kids to the oldest. And he said to me what saddened him was he had to ask somebody in Australia how to listen to his uncle who'd been ignored for 30 years. And the rest of the dinner was amazing. Now, I get an email every year at Thanksgiving from this radio announcer thanking me. And like all I said was ask a question, when did you first form this opinion? Because people who repeat a story or go on about a story 
Um, the reason they go on about it is they haven't been heard. They haven't been listened to. And one of the things we don't really understand about listening is it's not your job to make sense of what the other person's saying. Great listeners help the other person make sense of what they're thinking and what it means to them. And sometimes if you can just step back and forget the fact that it's somebody who's close to you and just ask that question, when did you first form this opinion? Uh, I got a bit of a shock. Uh, I had to ask my dad who had a stroke last year. Uh, he had to vote in an election, but he was incapable of reading. He was incapable of writing. And for the first time in my life, I had to ask him what he would like to mark on the ballot paper. And I was horrified at his response. And then I had to ask him that question, when did you first form this opinion? And I learned a story about my dad being bullied and intimidated by union officials on a, on a work site that I'd never known about. So the stories even, the questions even work on myself, Matt. <laughs> Sometimes it's, it's as close as your father. I am curious when you share that story. I mean, it's a beautiful story that the radio announces story and Thanksgiving and Vietnam War. And then you shared something of your own story with your father. Oscar, you have devoted your life to listening, your, your passion, the impact that you have on a, on a world scale is, or with world reach, I should say, is, is around inviting others to hold a mirror up to the way they listen so that they can do that in more impactful ways. When did you first notice that listening was such a powerful process in your life? Mm. I will answer the question, but here's my question to you. Is that your question or the audience's question? It's my question. And you're okay with that? I'm okay with that. I'll second it. Okay. I'm okay with it. Our audience knows that they're on a ride with an entrepreneur, a journalist and a, you know, psychologist. They, uh, they know it's bumpy. Uh, <laughs> but but it's my question because Human Cogs is around, well, it's my question hopefully on behalf of our listeners as well, Yeah. that Human Cogs is about the people behind it's the human story behind the, the guests we speak to. Mm. And you're a very powerful speaker. You're a very powerful listener. And so I am curious, how has it come to be? And by the way, the answer to that question, whether it's the audience or you, neither is right or wrong. It's just being conscious of it is the same as the difference between listening to similarity and difference. So if you, if you go to 13-year-old Oscar, Miss. Um, got a werewolf jaw so my jaw was very 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 protruded so protruded in fact that um, my favorite place was reading encyclopedias and being in the library because I didn't need to draw attention to myself I was the butt of many jokes at family functions at school wherever the case may be and at the age of 13 uh, I got braces and it was very, very, very painful because they had to basically move my jaw back the best part of an inch and a half. So that if you put an inch and a half on your face, that's, that's a lot of runway. And, and I had braces till I was 17. Most people get it for maybe one to two years in, in those days. Um, but for me, it was four years. And what I learned really quickly was the most powerful way not to draw attention to me in my face was to ask other people questions. The easiest place to put my cloak of invisibility on was to ask questions. At my school, there were 23 different nationalities because we live next to the Villawood Immigration Centre, which is currently called the Villawood Detention Centre, which tells you about the change in attitude to migration in our country. 
And we used to play this Italian card game, which was played in paired teams, two by two. Play diagonally across each other, and you'd play in your national teams. Now, my mum and dad, uh, one from the deep north of Italy, one from the deep south of Italy, got married in Australia. Only two people turned up to their wedding. My uh, uncle, uh, eldest uncle on my dad's side and my eldest uncle on my mum's side. And that was it. And they were literally Romeo and Juliet and cast out from their family. So we grew up as Aussies in a, in a migrant uh, community. But we'd play this Italian card game and I, w- I didn't have a team. And occasionally someone would be short of a player. So I'd play on the Brazilian team, the Uruguayan team, the Argentinian team, the Polish team, the, whichever team. But what I didn't, everybody played in their local language. So everybody had an advantage. At least they thought they did. But what they didn't realize, they were letting their guard down. And I would look at the way they'd hold those cards, the way their smile would come up ever so slightly, how their eyes would engage differently with the cards. And I started to listen to nonverbal signals while I had this set of braces on my werewolf jaw. And through my working career, I was always renowned for, that's fascinating, but tell me what the customers think. Have you been in the contact centre and actually listened to what the customers say or if you just reading research data from a PowerPoint slide? And often people will be shocked because our team meetings would always be the recordings from the call centre for that week, as an example. So this thread of listening has gone through my whole life, but it wasn't until 2008 when my um, senior vice president was in a board meeting with me between Sydney, Seattle and Singapore, and it was a 90-minute budget meeting. And at the 20-minute mark, she looked across the table at me and said, Oscar, I need to see you immediately after this meeting. And in my head, the 13-year-old with braces and a werewolf jaw, the only thing I was thinking of is I'm going to get fired. Now, the meeting finished early. By the way, if you listen well, meetings happen quicker because you listen to what matters, not what's said. And Tracy asked me to close the door of this boardroom as everybody left. And as I walked back to my chair, she said, you have no idea what you did at the 20-minute mark, do you? And still in my head, I'm getting fired and I have no idea why. And I sat down next to Tracy And she said to me, if you could code the way you listen, you could change the world. And yet the only thing going through my head in that moment, I haven't been fired. That was the only thing going through my head. And in that moment of profound listening on Tracy's part, and I was very fortunate. I think this is one of the reasons why I listen so well. I've had 13 managers in my life, 10 were women. And I've been very lucky to be led by women because they listen very differently to the way men listen, whether it's to a problem, a solution, the context of the group or anything else like that. You you said earlier that women listen to feel and men listen uh, to fix. Yeah, that's a vast generalisation. When you go down deep in the research data, it's not true. There isn't a material difference between gendered listening. My lived experience, though, is the way that my female leaders listened to me was very different to the way my male leaders listened to me. Now, don't get me wrong, I have enormous respect for my male leaders and they bring completely different strengths and approaches to that. But in that moment where Tracy said, could you, you know, if you could code the way you listen, you could change the world. The only thing I could blurt out of my mouth in that moment, because in my head I'm going, you pee, I haven't lost all that money in my bank account. I said, Tracy, do you mean code or code code? And she said, Oscar, we work at Microsoft. I mean coded into software. Now, the difference between hearing and listening is the action you take, and I'm kind of a decade and a bit down that journey, and we're, I'm only now starting to code code three books and jigsaw puzzle games and playing cards and quizzes all in between. But I have to thank my 13-year-old self with a werewolf jaw who taught me how to listen. Now, am I allowed to talk? 
<laughs> so conscious of listening. Um, thank you for sharing your story, Oscar. Um, so that was 10 years ago and then you've tried a bunch of different things to explore how you, I suppose, yeah, codify or create toolkits mm. for other people to listen. For our listeners, can you talk a bit more um, about what you uh, what you do deliver, whether that's workshops and books, and how can they engage with you and your resources? Uh, rather than engage with me, just find out your listening barrier by going to listeningquiz.com. Take the seven-minute quiz. You'll find out which one is your primary listening barrier and we'll give you three tips from there if you want to get in touch with me we do all sorts of stuff we do keynotes workshops webinars we do um team meetings company kickoffs sales conferences all those kinds of things um but we are most famous for our our deep listening jigsaw puzzle game and uh maybe we'll do that on the next podcast (laughs) who who is we ah so Behind me is me and Yoda, of course. <laughs> we can see Yoda. We don't yeah. use visuals in our pod, so no one else is going to see people Yoda. People keep sending me Yodas, right? How big is that one? It's like it's huge. Right? He looks like a great listener. He looks like he doesn't do much speaking. Yeah. He's a puppet, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so we have this community called the Deep Listening Ambassador Community. And the Deep Listening Ambassador Community, the only thing they have in common is they've signed up for the quest for 100 million deep listeners in the workplace so we think if there's 100 million deep listeners out there in the world it'll be a tipping point for the workplaces of the world why 100 million because it's two percent of a population and in the book tipping point malcolm gladwell has a bunch of research some of which is still true and some of which has been proven false it's okay we're still on the quest so the deep listening ambassador community Right now, it's about 180 folks. We meet together on each time zone, Asia, Europe, and Americas once a month, and we just get together as a community and have a conversation about things they're struggling with in the workplace or contemporary issues. So we've spent a lot of time recently, for example, going, how do you listen on Zoom when you're the host? Um, so we, we wrote a very, we wrote 105-page paper for the, for the uh, community and other people the ultimate guide to listening on a video conference as an example but everything we've done has either been my clients or the deep listening ambassador community going oscar can you make a set of practice cards for us can you make that into a jigsaw puzzle game you know sometimes even i struggle with um listening the first time because uh as the sole entrepreneur in the group um it's incumbent on me to do that and I remember being interviewed by Kevin in Atlanta and he said, look, Oscar, even McDonald's has more than one outlet, so stop trying to flip all your own burgers. And that's <laughs> where the Deep Listening Ambassador community was born and, and Kevin became the first ambassador because I said, well, Kevin, um, the difference between hearing and listening is action, so are you going to be the first one? And he kind of gulped and paused, and, but he said yes and he's still on the journey with us. More poignant space. <laughs> Stop trying to flip all your own burgers. I like that. Yeah, that's good. That's good. I've written that one down. I think that's great. Oscar, plumbers sometimes have leaky taps and hairdressers have bad roots. God knows what psychologists have. They have a lot of stuff. <laughs> um, what do listening experts have in their closet? The only reason I'm trying to learn all this stuff about listening is because I want to improve my listening. It's like I'm teaching this as much to myself. And what it does is it sets a, a benchmark for me that I can't be the listening guy if I'm doing listening. So in the early days, I was very instructive and impervious and intimidating. I could dial up every fact, every figure, every statistic in the universe. And uh, somebody said to me, um, what you teach is amazing, but it's way too hard for me. And I, and I realized in that moment that it's more important for me to role model what listening is rather than teach it. And the irony is in role modeling it, I'm 
creating a more powerful teaching experience than what it was. So for me, it's, it's constantly doing the things that I teach and making sure I'm doing them and being them and, uh, and being okay sometimes to go, yeah, I've, I, I had to take three months off in October last year because my dad had a stroke and tell whoever I needed to and everybody was completely understanding but I nearly broke myself in half like a toothpick because I was trying to rescue too many people and I just needed to rescue myself in that moment. So um, I can still remember where I was driving in the pouring rain two and a half hours into a 90-minute drive and I still had about three kilometers to go to get to my dad's house going i just can't do this anymore so as important as it is to listen to what the audience wants in those questions and to focus on the deep listening ambassador community i can't give what i haven't got so the big lesson for me always is am i filling my own cup up mm. and listening to yourself mm. Mm. in the bath with some candles <laughs> And yoga. I, I like uh, what you're saying about sort of do as I do, not as I say. Yeah, the, the lived practice of listening. It is, it is very powerful. And to sit in your presence today and see you on the audience can't, of course, but on this Zoom is, yeah, your body language and your presence is all speaking of listening um, as much as your uh, the theory of listening and all your deep work that you've done. So thank you for all the listening that you have done today um, and teaching and also the listening that you uh, are equipping people with out in the world. I'm sure it's incredible, uh, incredible work and gives a lot. Second last question, and it's to take a leaf out of Oscar's book, I think at the end of your podcast, How to Listen, Oscar, you ask all your guests, what did you notice about my listening? And... I'm nervous, but open, curious and ready to ask the question to you. Oscar, what did you notice about our listening? I'm just going to call my lawyer. (laughs) Well, the easiest way to answer that is to notice it in others. So I'll answer the question. Both of you will need to answer the question the other way as well. What What do you notice in my listening? So the difference between hearing and listening is action. And although I invited a different approach at the beginning of the conversation, which I do on every interview I do, only one in 10 will have the confidence, the conviction, and the certainty in themselves to change course. So you both have honored me with your listening by changing course in this conversation. And this will either be your most popular or least popular episode ever as a result. I love how you both embraced silence. And you've paused before you've asked the next question. So they're the three things I've noticed in both your listening to me today. And as somebody who does what I do professionally, you honour me by listening today and how you've shown up. Who's thank going to speak first? Well, I, 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 I want to say thank you. Yeah. Not, not for a glowing report card, but for that's such a present and mindful and thoughtful summary and what that says to me is how aware and mindful you have been in this exchange and how you've listened, how you've really listened. Only then can you give feedback like that. So, yeah, thank you. Ditto. So what have you noticed about my listening? It's, it's what I saw at the beginning around, it's not saw, you know, Mads, you said something about we can't, other, our listeners can't see, can't see Oscar. You don't need to see Oscar because listening's, there are visual cues, but if I was blindfolded like our listeners are in a podcast for, format, the tone, the pace, the high curiosity, the lack of judgment, 
is what has created the listening space for me because of you. Mm. Yeah, and I would add, um, you're very non-judgmental in your in your voice and your tone, but also we can see you, um, and it's very open. And there's a warmth and a safety in the way that you are with us in this conversation, even though I've never met you before today. Um, and so that's quite something to very quickly create a, a safe space. And change behaviour, change other people's behaviour, not because you're telling them or instructing them or because they're paying you or because they should, but because you're you're modelling it. And through that modelling, there's a contagion and, and an inspiration and a, and a desire to go on the journey with you. We're not even 100,000 ambassadors or however many, but I think I want to be one. Yeah, sign me up. <laughs> um, and, and to listen better. And I hope I carry, I mean, I have slowed down my speech a thousand a lot, <laughs> um, but carry some of this into my conversations beyond this call and into my family home later today um, and to remember it, to remember to use some of those listening techniques. So thank you very much for sharing with us. And that's why we have a water drop on the front cover of the next book, How to Listen, because we believe it's all about creating ripple throughout the world. Beautiful. How to listen. And it's out soon. Oh, you can order now. Something about a, a drip as well is slow and gentle, but it doesn't go away. <laughs> so that's what I'm thinking about with what you've, not just the ripple, but the, the pace. In all of these conversations, uh, of course, they're always about humans and the complexity of humans in the world around us. Um, when you think about the humans in the world, who do you think is doing human well? Well, I guess just continuing with my dad. You know, I mentioned earlier, Ron, that he had a stroke. He's made some recovery compared to where he was 12 months ago, but nowhere near where he was before the stroke. And the amount of change he's had to process and the dignity with which he's conducted himself. And just being willing to accept help for someone who's never accepted help in his life, all 83 years of it. Somebody who had their first pair of shoes when they moved to Australia at the age of 14, somebody who didn't speak the local language and they had to go to school in the second week of them arriving in the country and all the struggles that that would have meant for him and the way he's raised his family and how he's created a life the other side of a stroke. Uh, he's someone I look at and go, wow, I wish to be half the man you are the way you're conducting yourself. So my dad. Mm. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Human Cogs. We hope that this conversation has led you to think a little bit differently about yourself and those around you. And thank you for all the amazing feedback that we get about these conversations. If you do like Human Cogs and what we're doing, we would love you to hit subscribe and please leave us a star rating. What that means is we can keep bringing you more stories from Extraordinary Ordinaries to help us all do, do human, human well. well.